I invite you then to turn with me to your Bibles, and we're looking this morning at Judges chapter 15. Judges chapter 15. Let's pray as we come now to God's Word. Our Father God, we thank you for your Word. We pray it would uh, do its work of not merely giving us information, but transforming us. This morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, Judges chapter 15, and I will read for us beginning at verse 1. Let's hear God's word. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stack grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burnt her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. He struck them hip and, th- and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty and called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place, that is, at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. 
Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakore. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Pain. Trauma. Harm. When you experience pain, it is normally unforgettable. And because it is unforgettable, it tends to create a pattern of pain and trauma and harm. The phrase that is often used to describe this common tendency in life is that hurt people hurt people. Well, there was a lot of pain here. Samson's marriage was filled with pain. He violently attacked those who caused him pain. Then they attacked other people who were associated with Samson and they experienced pain and trauma and hurt. Hurt people hurt people. Because when you experience pain, it is often unforgettable, it tends to create a pattern of cascading repercussions. I don't just mean if you're doing a bit of construction work and you hit your thumb with a hammer, but trauma, real, real emotional pain, physical pain of a substance, substantive kind that then affects the way you think and feel. I remember one uh, time in my life when I look back over the preceding year and I realized that every single day that year, without exception, I had cried. Every single day. The whole year. The realization this came to me as something as a surprise because being British I thought my tear ducts had been removed at birth what do you do with your pain perhaps your personal pain perhaps the pain you observe in the Middle East or in that city of Maine, all the families impacted by those 18 people who were murdered, and all the other mass murders, and, uh, and the traumas of this world that are, maybe it's personal, maybe it's, what do we do with what's going on in, all around us? Well, here in this story we have in front of us, there is a solution. 
There's a solution that will break the cycle of hurt people hurting people. If we'll receive it. And maybe you are in pain and maybe you know people in pain. Either way, I think this will be encouraging to you, this story. What we see here is there are four movements that amazingly teach us that God is sovereign over different aspects of our pain. And then lead us, as I say, to the solution. So here's the first of those four movements that show us God's amazing sovereignty even over our pain. The first is God can use even bad marriages. I mean, look down at the beginning of, uh, of the chapter with me. Samson's marriage was a disaster. You remember from a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at it that his, his bridal party had been interrupted and his wife had been given to someone else, but Samson wasn't aware of this, so he goes back to visit his wife. And verse 1, he brings with him a young goat, which was the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of turning up to see your wife with a dozen red roses, I suppose. I think I would have recommended the roses, but he, he goes with a young goat. But... Uh, his father-in-law informs him he's already given her away to someone else, Samson's best man at his wedding. And then I think because his father-in-law is so scared of the repercussions of what this might do to Samson that he will get, Samson's like the incredible Hulk and if he gets angry, you don't want to be around when he gets angry, he might turn green And so he sort of offers him the younger sister instead. I mean, the whole thing is a disaster. Certainly a bad marriage. And yet we are told, chapter 14, verse 4, this was from the Lord. God can even use bad marriages. Of course, that is not meaning that I am encouraging you to have a bad marriage nor to seek a bad marriage. But God can use even bad marriages. I'm not encouraging you to be content with a bad marriage if you have a bad marriage any more than I'm encouraging you to go and get 300 foxes and tie their tails together and cause a fire. But God can use even bad marriages. Sometimes we seem to think there's a direct proportional relationship to the perfection of our home life and whether God can use us. Oh, no. John Wesley famously had a terrible marriage, a great preacher. God used him. We can get, I think, a little OCD, obsessive compulsive about our marriages and want them always to be perfect or look perfect. 
And then we find out that our knight in shining armor is rusting up. Or the damsel in distress that we rescued seems to be always stressed. And we wonder whether God can use that. But if you've made a covenant commitment to your wife or husband... It's from the Lord, and that is your marriage, good or bad. God doesn't wait for us to have a perfect marriage before he can use us. He uses us exactly as we are. And if you're not yet marriage, uh, married, ma- marriage and your marriage partner is not about finding just the right person. Marriage is about becoming yourself just the right person. It's about a commitment between two sinners. And it's about God and his unbreakable purpose in our lives that he is sovereign, that God can use even bad marriages and so we don't bail because God is sovereign and it's from the Lord again which is not an encouragement for us to be content with bad marriages but it does help us with our pain that God can use even that Well, that's the first movement here of God's extraordinary sovereignty. First, God can use you in bad marriages. Second, God can use even invading armies. That's what was going on here. The Philistines then invaded. And to say that God can use it in his sovereignty is in no way to minimize the trauma and the pain and the hurt of war and invasion. Uh, here, the Bible's very explicit about how damaging it was. They, they actually went and found Samson's bride and his father-in-law and burnt them to death. To say that God can use even evading armies is not to minimize the, the evil of war. The Bible doesn't minimize it. We shouldn't be naive about the damage that it does in our world today. And look at the, go to France if you ever have the opportunity. Look at the mass graves of the people who were killed in World War I. Read about what happened to the island of Crete during World War II and how the natives were brutally massacred. Read up on the Civil War in this, own, in this country. To say that God can use such things in no way minimizes the evil, but neither does it minimize the sovereignty of God. Later in the Bible, uh, God describes a massive local empire with its military campaigns as merely his club. It's all in his hands. Or Psalm 46, and we'll be singing uh, from this at the end. It's the famous text that Luther used for his uh, um, 
uh, famous hymn that we'll sing at the end, Psalm 46, goes like this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. No, we will not fear. Why? Well, we don't want there to be war. We're told, um, Psalm 46, verse 9, God will make wars cease to the ends of the earth. Oh, we want peace. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. He's going to remove all that one day. One day there will be total international peace when Jesus comes again. Be still and know that God is God and that he will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. But God is sovereign over all that. A little earlier in the psalm, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. God utters his voice. The earth melts. God even uses invading armies. Doesn't make the evil and suffering good. Not minimizing that, but neither minimizing the sovereignty of God. Famous illustration of this is from the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, which we quite often sing and perhaps you have sung or may know of. That's, that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, was written after the Great Chicago Fire in 1871. In the Great Chicago Fire, a man called Horatio Spafford lost everything, everything. And then his four daughters were traveling across the Atlantic And all of them died soon after having lost everything in the great Chicago fire of of 1871. All his daughters, all four, were killed traveling across the Atlantic. And then famously, his wife sent him a telegram after that simply saying, Saved alone. And then he wrote, it is well with my soul. How steeped was he in the sovereignty of God. He knew that nothing could separate him from the love of God. Not even death. Not even the death of his loved ones could separate him from the love of God. Nor deny the sovereign loving purpose of God. And one day, if not today, and I I don't know where you are in your own personal pain and trauma, but one day, someday, if not today, you will need that realization. You will need the realization that God is sovereign even over suffering and pain, even over invading armies. And so we need to learn now that truth so that one day when the storm comes the house of your life is built on the rock and you can sing it is well with my soul well that's a a tough 
doctrine, of course, isn't it? Which makes the third movement here very encouraging. God can use even cowardly Christians. And how I empathize with the people of God here, even though they are cowardly. You see what happens in, in verse 10. The Philistines come in to invade the country and the God's people discover that they're invading because of what Samson has done. And instead of getting behind their great hero, what do they do? They hand him over to be killed by their enemies. Uh, it's astonishingly cowardly. Instead of using the 3,000 men to go and battle the Philistines, they give Samson over to them. It, it, it's, it's cowardly. And, and yet, of course, we empathize, don't we? It's easy to sing uh, the great battle hymn of the Reformation on Sunday, but on Monday feel like crawling away into a corner. We empathize with the men of Judah who will do anything for a peaceful life. Let's just give Samson to them and move on. But though we empathize with them, verse 11 is just astonishing. When they finally find Samson, what do they say? Uh, Verse 11, don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Time out. Time out, God's people. The Philistines are rulers over you? Don't you know, Samson? Time out. God's people are the people that God himself rescued from Egypt, (laughs) led through the deserts, brought into the promised land in his sovereign power with miracle after miracle. And now they say to Samson, Samson, don't you know that the Philistines rule over us? Get with the program, Samson. Come on. It's not only cowardly, it's craven. I remember one time when I was being interviewed for a a job in a ministry some years ago, and a doctrinal issue came up that I not only explained my view on it, but I also took the time to explain why the Bible taught that particular doctrinal matter. And what astonished me was not that the people who interviewed me disagreed on that doctrinal matter, that didn't particularly surprise me, But what astonished me is that that evidently they didn't really care what the Bible said about it. The attitude was, Josh, don't tell us what the Bible's saying about it. Don't you realize that's not what the culture wants? As I went through 1 and 2 Timothy and I explained to them how that we were completely for the ministry of women and we want women's ministry to flourish, nonetheless the Apostle Paul clearly teaches that women may not be preaching pastors or elders and, uh, uh, and, and I explained how that was taught from the Bible and they didn't disagree with my exegesis. All they said was, Josh, don't you realize that's not what the culture wants? Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines rule over us? Craven. Who are we following? I remember another time I was being a little early in this interview for another job. That was this one was in England for be a national director of evangelism of a youth ministry in England. And the leader of that ministry was interviewing me. I got to the final round of it, and he was interviewing me for this position. 
And he asked me what my strategy was going to be to reach the youth of the United Kingdom, this national director evangelism position. And I explained various things, but then I said fundamentally and foundationally, my conviction is that it's God's word that generates change, that God alone sovereignly converts people. It is his power, and so everything I do will be driving for God's word and his gospel. And I'll never forget the kind of sneering tone and the look of disdain on his voice. Oh, come on, Josh. And that man is now, he was an Orthodox Christian at the time, and now he's moved away from that. Don't you realize the Philistines rule over us? Don't you realize we need a different kind of methodology than God's word? Get with the program. Get with the times. Craven. Cowardly. We empathize with them. We want a peaceful life. It's so easy to be like that, isn't it? And God can even use cowardly Christians as he did here. And if you feel that cowardliness, as I do too, it's so easy to sing the Battle Hymn of the Reformation and then on Monday feel like crawling away into a corner. If you empathize with them as I do, remember the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus, and there are all sorts of different elements of difference between the two. But fundamentally, the main difference, of course, is that Peter repented. Though it's never too late, God can use even cowardly Christians. Realize the Philistines do not rule over us. Come back to God and his word. So the fourth then, the final of these movements, as we look through how to solve this pattern of hurt people, hurting people, that will lead us to the solution at the end, the fourth of these movements, the ways that God is amazingly sovereign over even the pain of our lives, is in some ways the most astonishing, I think, of them all, which is God can use even personal anger, which isn't to say that anger personal anger is a good thing. The Bible is very clear that in your anger do not sin. And the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Again, we're not affirming the, 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 the goodness of, uh, of Samson's anger. Anger, uh, uh, anger, even when it is a righteous indignation. And there is such a thing as a righteous indignation. Uh, Jesus cleaning out the, the temple is, will be a model of that. Even when there is such a thing as a righteous indignation, for us humans, it is always, I think, tempered with a little bit of self and Even when it's a right emotion, it's a dangerous emotion. And here, though uh, Martin Luther used to joke that he never, he could never preach nor write unless he felt angry. So I'm not quite sure what to do about that, but there you go. But here, Samson's anger, he's just, he's just furious. His his bride has been burnt to death. His father-in-law has been burnt to death. He's... Uh, his country is being ruled by the Philistines. Uh, his fellow countrymen have betrayed him. He's furious. 
beside himself with rage. He's as angry as a scorched cat. And he lashes out. And uh, Samson then, verse 16, comes out with another one of these extraordinary poems of his. Uh, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. There's a lot of... um, meaning here that's really hard to bring out in translation. The NIV tries when it talks about with uh, the jawbone of a donkey, I've made donkeys of them because the word for donkey and the word for heaps relate to each other in the Hebrew. And so Samson is now mad as a scorched cat, angry as a scorched cat. He's now sort of dancing on the grave of his victims. Uh, With a donkey, I've made donkeys of them is sort of what he's saying. Or, or um, one translator called Moffat uh, put, it, uh, put it like this. With the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in a mass. He, he, I think that Samson's almost like the Middle Eastern gangster rapper. With the jawbone of an ass, I've piled them in a mass. Like he's really getting into it, you know? You can sort of see him with a microphone, with the jawbone of an ass, I'll pile them in a mass, you know? And there's another kind of play image here on, on, on the red, I'm told, which is Bernie, uh, a man called Bernie translates it like this. With red asses, jawbone, I have reddened them right red. With a red asses, jawbone, I've reddened them right red. With a jawbone of an ass, I pile them in a mass. Boom. He's furious. And again, that God uses that doesn't mean that we should be intemperately angry. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And the history of religion is too littered with people fighting for the cause of God out of what in retrospect seems clearly to be motives of personal anger and vindictiveness. But nonetheless, the Lord used it somehow. God is sovereign even over personal anger. It doesn't make the anger good. We don't minimize that, but nor do we minimize the sovereignty of God. Which all leads us to the solution. It's a wonderful image here at the end. So you see where he is as he... um, finishes speaking, he's at a place that is called, verse 17, Ramath-Lehi, which means, you're told in your footnotes, your Bibles, Jawbone Hill. That's where he is. He's angry. He's got a jawbone. Pile them in a mass. He's at Ramath-Lehi. But then he becomes desperate, thirsty, And he calls upon the Lord, and God uh, miraculously opens up a spring of water, and he drinks. And then verse uh, 19, his spirit returned and he revived. His, his, His spirit came to life. And that place was called En Hakore, 
the caller's spring. So this pattern of hurt people hurting people, part of the solution in our own lives and in the lives of countless millions throughout the world who experience trauma and difficulty is to realize that God is good and has a sovereign purpose through it all. And of course, that is the very heart of the gospel. The cross, where Jesus died, is both the greatest evil that was ever committed to kill the Son of God and the place of salvation. It's the very heart of the gospel, and to receive that in our own personal lives, we need to move from Ramoth Lehi, Jawbone Hill, trauma and pain and anger, to En Hakore, Caller's Spring. Lord God, I thirst. So that we don't just receive the Spirit temporarily, as the great heroes of the Old Testament did, to be empowered for ministry, but as is the promise of New Testament Christians, God's Spirit comes and dwells within us permanently, and we are transformed. We come to life. And that is the solution to our personal traumas, the traumas of the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. New people loved with a sovereign loved, forgiven people, forgiving people. And so we need to call upon the Lord for help in our own personal pain as well as for help with the pains of our society today. So let's, let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Lord God, we do ask that you would be a work in our lives this morning, and we pray uh, most earnestly, Lord, that uh, a spring of living water would well up within each of us, So that we are transformed. We pray for those many Christians who are working to bring the gospel to the places of trauma in our world, that you would help them point to this caller's spring too. And we pray, Lord, that. Uh, those of us here, and I suppose at some level it must be all of us, who have been hurt or experienced pain, would not be the hurt people who hurt people. But instead, Lord, would we be the forgiven people who forgive people. And for that we need the help of your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.